Joining us now in this segment is our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika. Hello, Doug. It's nice to be here. We're glad to have you. It's good to have you back. It's been about, what, a year? Uh, yes, it has. I've been busy slipping them surly bonds of earth. Flying about the country. Yes, indeed. This story comes to us courtesy of the latest, which is the 17th edition of the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. This one is the Uncle John's Slightly Irregular Bathroom Reader. All right, here we go. Air Canada Flight 143 on July 23rd, 1983, started out like any other flight. Captain Robert Pearson and First Officer Maurice Quintal had arrived ahead of time to go over the aircraft. The flight was scheduled to depart Montreal shortly before 6 p.m. They were going to make a quick 19-minute hop to Ottawa to pick up more passengers before flying 1,700 miles across Canada to Edmonton, Alberta. The plane was a twin-engined Boeing 767, at that time one of the most sophisticated commercial aircraft around. Now, it was one of the first commercial jets with a what was called a glass cockpit, meaning all these standard instruments and gauges had been replaced with a bank of computer screens displaying the same information in a digital graphic format. Correct. It looked very much like a uh, computer video game. The jet that I fly is a Boeing 727, and we still refer to it as a steam-powered instrument because there are gauges and needles and uh, won't all get blown out by just one fuse. But yes. I guess I'm just old school. The 767 in 1983 was so new that Air Canada owned only four of them, none of which had been in service for more than a few months. Captain Pearson, who had more than 26 years in the job, was one of only a handful of Air Canada pilots qualified to fly the plane. It's because so much information was condensed on easy-to-read displays, it eliminated the need for the pilot to scan numerous tiny gauges all over the cockpit, which reduced eye strain and fatigue. Ha ha. Yeah, maybe. That's the idea. The new 767s, the article points out, were so sophisticated, in fact, that only two people were needed to fly it, the pilot and the first officer or co-pilot, instead of the usual three. The position of flight engineer had been eliminated. I like being in a three-person cockpit. Many reasons. You have another brain and another set of eyes up there <laughs> to help scan for things and, and help a, a brainstorm if necessary. And also... If the captain is in a bad mood, there's only a 50% chance he's going to take it out on me. <laughs> well, words of wisdom. Stay tuned with that thought about having two people versus three in a cockpit. As it turned out on this day, this day being uh, July 23rd, back in 1983, they got on board and realized there was something wrong with the fuel quantity processor, the instrument that measures the available jet fuel and displays the amount on the computer screen. As a result... The fuel gauge display was blank, and there was no spare fuel quantity processors available on short notice. The planes were too new. Captain Pearson would have to fly the plane without any fuel gauges. But was that permitted? In a traditional jumbo jet, it said the answer was no. But the 767's fuel management system was much more sophisticated than a traditional mechanical fuel gauge. It could actually measure the rate at which fuel was consumed, which meant that you could, uh, you know, you could, if you manually told the computer how much fuel was in the tanks, at the start of the flight, it would automatically subtract the amount consumed to give the precise estimate of how much was left. Well, in the older model aircraft, uh, we would not have taken off. Well... 
as it turned out with this then newer model aircraft they had consulted the 767's official official minimum equipment list or MEL to see if it could be cleared to fly and it could not be and when Pearson Captain Pearson pointed this out to one of the mechanics the mechanic assured him that the plane had been cleared to fly by the Air Canada's maintenance control division which has the final say even over the minimum equipment list as to whether an aircraft is safe. Captain Pearson, it might be stated, had his misgivings. I'm surprised that the Air Canada Maintenance Control Division stated that they had the final say when it's the captain, in this case, Captain Pearson, who always has the final say. Well, it was the mechanic that claimed that Air Canada had the final say in whether it was safe to fly, and apparently the captain at that moment bought into the argument, which I'm sure he was sorry of shortly. And this this uh, goes to show it's this was I would say the first chain or first link in the chain. <laughs> yes. Or the first domino. Yes. Because the most, first domino has now fallen. Most any accident, aviation accident that's looked into, it is no one single event. It is a whole chain of events that happened that had anybody at any point during the chain or the domino toppling just said, "Hey, wait a second." we would have averted the whole thing. And to me, this looks like the first domino. Well, here comes the second domino. Air Canada's four 767s had another way that they were unique. They were the first jumbo jets in the entire fleet to use the metric system. The fuel was measured in kilograms, not pounds, that they, the, the Air Canada pilots were used to dealing with. Adding to the confusion, while the plane measured its fuel by mass, which is kilograms, the fuel truck measured the fuel truck measured out its gasoline allotment by volume in liters. Now, with the fuel quantity processor broken, all the calculations normally done by computers were now done on a pocket calculator. They asked, but whose job was it to do the math? Well, on the ordinary jumbo jet, it was the flight engineer's job to calculate the fuel load. But on the 767 that day, that position had been eliminated. As an investigation, it says, later revealed, the pilots had been told that fuel calculations were now the job of the ground crew. But since the ground crew hadn't been trained to do the calculations, then either the captain or the first officer had to be responsible for them now. Here's the math. Captain Pearson knew he needed 22,300 kilograms to get to Edmonton. He also knew there were 7,682 liters of fuel in the tanks. So it's a rather simple arithmetic question. How many liters of additional fuel does the plane need to get to 22,300 kilograms? That's the question. <laughs> now, Captain Pearson was used to thinking in terms of gallons and pounds, and his knowledge of the metric system, it says, was a little bit rusty. So he asked the guy on the refueling truck, how many liters are in a kilogram? 1.77, the guy answered. And that sounded about right to him. The first officer, Kintle, he thought so too. So here's what they did. They knew they had 7,700 liters. They multiplied times 1.77 kilograms per liter to determine that they had about 13,600 kilograms. They needed 22,000, so they subtracted and got 8,700 was the deficit. Going over to the fuel truck and then saying, well, we need 8,700 liters, divide 1.77, add 4,900 liters, and it should all work out. They did the math a couple times. The co-pilot looked at it and said, 
that's got to be right. See, Doug, sitting here and listening to him, I'm, I'm already getting nervous and, and the hair on the back of my neck is standing up, let alone if I was a co-pilot in that situation. My old aviation hero and mentor in Alaska, old bush pilot, said, boys, if you feel the hair on the back of your neck standing up, there's something <laughs> wrong. You don't have to know what's wrong. There's something wrong. Right now, these were red flags that should have been going for these guys. The fuel, we don't know how much fuel is. We're using an abacus to figure out how much fuel we're going to put on board. And then we're doing metric liter pound conversions. Something, they should have stopped this at right here and it would not have been a problem. So they take off. They fly to Ottawa. The fuel crew checks the amount of liters left and figure that, you know, they're about right. This is going to work out. The math is okay. They have plenty of gas to get to Edmonton. The Boeing 767 then takes on 61 passengers and with eight additional crew members, takes off for Alberta. You, you, know, you know where this is going. They multiplied 1.77 to convert liters into kilograms. But in fact, 1.77 converts liters into pounds. They, they overestimated what they had in the tank by a factor of 2.2, and they underestimated how much they were actually adding by a factor of 2.2, which was a rather critical difference. I would think so. They had quite a bit less than half of what they actually needed. The first hint of trouble came just minutes before the engines quit, <laughs> which was about two hours into the flight. Four quick audible beeps sounded in the cockpit and a warning light came on indicating that one of the two fuel pumps in the left wing was reporting low pressure. Well, that wasn't unheard of. Uh, at first, Captain Pearson assumed there was something wrong with the fuel pump. So the pilot now thinks he's got a problem with the left wing fuel tank. He drops from 41,000 down to 28,000 feet and starts making plans to land with one engine if it comes to that. But the problem was five minutes after the first alarm sounded, there were four more beeps and then two more lights came on and then another four beeps and another four lights. Now the tool fuel pumps in the right wing tank as well as the tool fuel pumps in the center tank were reporting low pressures. So actually now he's got problems in all three tanks. And the problems in all three tanks will soon come <laughs> to problems in both engines. <laughs> Stay tuned. Nine minutes after the first beeps, a loud bong sounded in the cockpit. The left engine, completely starved of gas, sputtered out. Pearson and Quintal, still trying to figure out what was going on, prepared to land the 767 at Winnipeg with only one engine. It was an emergency situation, but it was something the plane was designed to do and something they'd been trained to handle. Unfortunately, three minutes later, the right engine ran out of fuel and quit. Pearson and Kintel had not been trained to land a 767 with both engines out. In fact, no one had. Jumbo jets are not supposed to run out of fuel. Indeed, they are not. This reminds me of uh, the three most uh, useless things in all of aviation. That is uh, runway behind you, altitude above you, and fuel left back in the fuel truck. Indeed, sir. I don't know which domino we're on now, but we're about to hit another one. They're tumbling rapidly. Captain Pearson quickly realized that this glass cockpit arrangement in the 767 was a little bit different because in a conventional aircraft, the mechanical instruments uh, keep working even if the engines quit. But in this case, they derived their power from the electrical generators powered by the jet engines. When both engines fail, the generators quit producing electricity and the computer screens go dark. Fortunately, they could still see out the window. 
Captain Pearson losing the digital instruments uh, had lost now the plane's airspeed, its altitude, its heading. He lost his transponder, which gives the plane's location, speed, and altitude for, to air traffic controllers, and he lost his vertical speed indicator, which told him how fast the plane was losing altitude. He didn't even have a clock. If they were in clouds and they had no instruments, it is impossible to keep the airplane upright. Next domino. The hydraulic system, which controls the landing gear and rudders, as it turned out, are also powered by the engine. So when the engines quit and the cockpit went dark, Pearson also felt that his yoke control and his rudder pedals were stiffening and becoming rather unresponsive. Well, Captain uh, had no fuel, almost no instruments, and was now quickly losing his ability to control the aircraft. But I didn't know this, and I'm sure you as a, a commercial pilot did know this. Airplanes are designed with many redundancies so that if a piece of equipment fails, there's usually a backup. And this plane did have a backup. The co-pilot, Kintel, flipped the switch to activate the auxiliary power unit, the APU, which is designed to, power, uh, to provide backup electricity and hydraulics. There was just one problem. The APU was powered by jet fuel. Well, that was pretty much it for the digital instruments. There's no way to power them. They're done. But they did have a backup system to at least power the hydraulics to control the, the, the yoke and the pedals. And <laughs> Uncle John's asks, did you ever stick a pinwheel out the window of a moving car when you were a kid? Well, the Boeing 767 has a device called the Ram Air Turbine, located near the right wheel well. It's a propeller on a long arm, and in an emergency can be manually extended into the airstream, like the kid's pinwheel. When the RAT hits the airstream, the propeller spins and generates just enough hydraulic pressure in the process to power basic flight controls. Co-pilot Quintel... <laughs> grabs the 767's emergency procedures manual and starts looking for the section that tells them what to do when both engines fail. But unfortunately, there was no such section. <laughs> These planes are not supposed to run out of gas. And they note that so many redundancies had been built into its design that they never tested for the ultimate failure. No fuel in the tanks. They figured with, with all of the other redundancies in this aircraft and alarms, etc., such a thing would simply never happen. The planes weren't supposed to run out of fuel, not in the air, not on the ground, not ever. And because the 767 had never been flight tested with both engines off, nobody knew how the jet would perform as a glider. So the captain at this point became a test pilot. <laughs> exactly where you do not want to be. No. Well, it turned out that the radios did have a backup battery, so they were at least able to maintain communication. And by radioing to the Winnipeg Air Traffic Control and them guesstimating off the, off the screen how fast they were losing altitude, they figured they lost about 5,000 feet for every 10 minutes traveled. And that wasn't good news because they were 35 miles away from Winnipeg, and they were going to probably come up about a dozen miles short of the runway. I practiced many, many a, a, a suppose in the Davis area of what I'd do if the, seven, if the Cessna 172 ran out of fuel, we, we would land in a field. But I don't think I want to test that with a 61 passenger <laughs> on board 767. No. But luckily, and they do have a, a spot of luck on a couple points at this point. Air traffic control notes that Gimli, Manitoba is 50 miles north of Winnipeg, closer to their position. And uh, as luck would have it, they have two very long runways. 
And luckily, Captain Kintel had trained at the airport when he was in the Air Force, so he was familiar with it. Flight 143 was going to Gimli as a glider. I wonder what they've been telling the passengers <laughs> during all of this. Well, we're at, we're at part three of this saga, where it starts out with, meanwhile, back in coach. <laughs> um, one of the nice things they note about the, this new Boeing 767 was that its engines were so quiet, and the cabin was so well insulated for sound, that very few passengers were even aware that both engines had stopped. It wasn't until the flight attendants began preparing everyone for an emergency landing that the passengers realized that things were serious. People were instructed to remove their eyeglasses, dentures, and any sharp objects from their pockets and to fasten their seat belts low and tight around their hips, and they were told to assume the crash position, arms crossed, hands holding the top of the seat back in front of them, head resting on their arms, and be ready for a rough landing. Well, it turned out Captain Pearson was a glider pilot. And they note that if he hadn't been, there's a pretty good chance that it would have already crashed. (laughs) Because in addition to being one of Canada's best jet pilots, he was also a licensed glider pilot with more than 10 years of experience. Uh, So it was Canada's best jet pilot (laughs) ran out of fuel? Well, stay tuned. You be the judge of what, what follows. Now, they did note that Captain Pearson did have a few mechanical backup instruments in the aircraft. He had an artificial horizon to help keep the plane level, an altimeter telling him how high he was, and an airspeed indicator. Now he had to work on the problem of how to glide one of these babies in. They note the normal landing speed for a 767 is between 115 and 153 knots, which for you uh, calculating in miles per hour, between 130 and 175. He decides he wants to come in a little hot. 180 knots, 205 miles an hour. Reasoning that he just can't risk coming in any slower. He does not want to stall this aircraft. Right. Extra speed is good, and it's better to run off the far end of the runway than it is to crash short of the runway. But now we hit the next domino. They're headed for Gimli. Things are looking okay in that department. But uh, now they've got to lower the landing gear, and it turns out that works by hydraulics, and that uh, this, this... RAT system, the pinwheel thingy that's out there, is not generating enough hydraulic pressure to lower the landing gear. But they have an emergency method, a switch that pulls the pins out of the landing gear doors. (laughs) So the co-pilot Kintle flips the switch and he and Pearson listen as the left and right landing gears noisily drop and lock. What about the nose gear? Well, there was another warning light then came on in the cockpit. The nose gear had not locked into place, and there was going to be no time to fix it. Next domino. Landing gear's down. Slows him down a bit, but um, the captain realizes he's still coming in too hot. So he wrestles the plane into a side slip. Turns it a bit to the side to sort of present more. Well, explain that. That's exactly what you were, where you were going, Doug. You turn the plane to the side. You push the nose over to one side. The tail will swing the other, produces uh, more drag along the slipstream. Uh, very common and easy maneuver uh, to do in smaller airplanes with straight wings. It gets a little trickier when you do it in a swept wing aircraft, uh, such as most modern jets. Well, Captain Pearson apparently uh, turned the plane into the side slip. Uh, in doing so, the left wing was dropping a bit low. Witnesses later said that he held this position until the wingtip was about 40 feet off the ground while traveling at 200 miles an hour. Whatever it takes in that situation. (laughs) 
All right, next domino. Could anything else go wrong? Well, in fact, yes, something else could go wrong. Gimli Air Force Base had two parallel runways, 32 left and 32 right, one of which was still used by private aircraft. Now, the captain didn't know which one, but he had to pick one, so he guessed 32 left. That's what he was going to commit to and held the plane in the tilted position until the last second, then leveled it off and prepared to land. He's got no power, no instruments, hardly any brakes. The plane's coming in too fast. The controls are stiff. The nose gear is not locked into position. And some of the tires on the landing gear coming in fast were certain to burst. But that wasn't all of his problems. He looked down the far end of the runway before touching down and noticed race cars. Apparently, the Winnipeg Sports Car Club was having a tailgate party, having held a race earlier that day out at the airbase. So, Captain Pearson looks down and observes campers, tents, coolers, barbecues, all at the end of the runway, having a cookout. Now, of course, the, the, the crew and, and the passengers were the only ones, of course, to have a surprise on this day. People out at the cookout looked up and observed a silent and very much out of place 767 <laughs> headed their way. <laughs> they Barreling that, in on them. They note that many who did see it coming, and at that point tilting with its left wing nearly scraping the ground, were too stunned to move. But it didn't really matter anyway. There was no time to clear the runway. Captain Pearson was going to have to land the plane in a much shorter distance than he'd been planning. So, the plane comes in, the tires hit the runway, two tires on the right landing gear burst, as they anticipated that it might. And um, so the captain's literally standing on the brake pedals, throwing his own weight into slowing the plane down. And uh, the nose gear, of course, touches down and gives way because it's unlocked. The fuselage of the jumbo jet then starts scraping the ground. And I did not know this, but jumbo jets are engineered to be tough enough to land on their belly if necessary. And that's exactly what was happening with, you know, a cloud of sparks and smoke coming off the plane. Uh, They note that you normally steer an airplane with the nose wheel, which was now out of commission. So the captain was trying to steer the aircraft by shifting his weight from one brake pedal to the other and trying to veer it left and right down the runway to further scrape off speed. In fact, he noticed a metal guardrail off the one side and headed for it, noting that it made a heck of a racket as it sheared one guardrail post after another, but it slowed the plane down even further. The 767, it says, finally came to a halt about halfway down the runway, 500 feet away from the auto club. Now, from start to finish, from the first uh, the first emergency light going on till the, 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 the semi-crash landing was only 29 minutes. They note the time was 8.30, 38, and this is a summer night. And uh, it, if it had been scheduled just an hour later, they say it would have been too dark to land. He would have uh, had difficulties even maintaining the plane upright without uh, proper instrumentation at night. Captain Pearson, well, he was demoted to first officer for six months. First officer Kintel was suspended with pay for two weeks. And the three members of the ground crew were suspended without pay for 10 days. So the pilots had a better union. Apparently. They did note that the investigation questioned the wisdom of introducing a metric aircraft into an Imperial Air Fleet. But uh, the report ultimately exonerated Pearson and Kintel, but also credited them with saving the passengers against some very long odds. Well, that they had done. Unfortunately, it was them that had thrown the dice for those odds in the first place. (laughs) Well, okay. In conclusion, they noted that Air Canada updated its procedures and improved its training. 
More importantly, it assigned the task of calculating the fuel load to one individual who is qualified to do it, even if the computers aren't working. They note the Gimli glider experience has not been repeated, at least not on Air Canada. Actually, Doug, this was uh, this whole incident inspired a made-for-TV movie back in 1995. It was with uh, William Devane, who played uh, Captain Bob Pearson, and it was called uh, "Falling from the Sky," Flight 174. I believe they changed the numbers of the flight. Mm-hmm. I uh, recently looked it up online and I looked at one of the initial early reviews of this movie, and it's a made-for-TV movie, so it's it's not going to be. Uh, good quality stuff, but the reviewer wrote that it was such a poorly made movie because they had so many impossible <laughs> things happening to this one poor flight right. that it could not have happened. Odds. And then the reviewer was later forced to recant when he found out it was in fact a true story. Couple of postscripts. They resurfaced the aircraft. It's been back uh, back in the air, and they said you might want to ask your flight attendant if you're flying on Air Canada if you're actually riding the Gimli glider. And, and the last item was that, that after this emergency landing, they dispatched several mechanics to Gimli to repair the jet. But on the way over, their van ran out of gas. <laughs> well, I trust we did not run out of gas for our audience because I think that is one heck of a story. Indeed it is. And, and I'm glad you were here as my co-pilot. Thank you for having me. Well, Vlad will come again. We'll do some more aviation stuff in the not-too-distant future. Great. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar. All right, that was First Officer Vladimir Zeravika, Radio Parallax's own aviation correspondent. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for our third segment. In Lama Land, there's a one man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come on, fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Once I get you up there, where the air is rarefied, we'll just glide this time.